Beloved, as our brother Gary just reminded us, just informed us, please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, to the Ephesians. Uh, as he indicated, this is our last message out of this fantastic book. This is the 45th message that I preached in this series out of Ephesians. That doesn't count some of the uh, topical diversions that I took to singles, to uh, children, to some others as well. For me personally, it's been an amazing journey. I have learned at least as many new things that I didn't know would be unearthed in my personal study of this book as any other book that I've preached through. I pray and trust that uh, you've been blessed by God's mighty word from this frail man. And it's going to be a little different this morning as we wrap up, as we do a conclusion. Our text this morning are the last two verses, Paul's closing benediction. But what we're going to do is the threefold outline for this morning is we're going to read the letter, we're going to review the benediction, and then we're going to recap the message, recapitulate the message. And I think the intent, the idea of this final message, this capstone sermon out of this tremendous book is that we would be a unified, a purified, and a fortified people of the Lord for his service. So first, we're going to read the letter. I love the Grand Canyon. There's different ways you can take in the Grand Canyon. You could take an airplane uh, trip around it, pay money for that. You can pay for a helicopter where it goes down a little more and you can have a little more examination of the different features. You can take a donkey ride down to the bottom or at least some way down and back. Uh, you can do a rim-to-rim uh, run. There's different ways in which you can do it. What we're going to do right now is we're going to do a rim-to-rim reading of this magnificent letter. And the idea behind this, beloved, is we would think of even the last time we were here in this letter, a couple weeks ago, we were thinking of Tychicus bringing this letter along with Onesimus to the church in Ephesus, and that most likely Tychicus read the letter to the church in Ephesus. Um, We also know that he likely read this letter, or others read this letter to the church in Colossae, maybe Laodicea as well. And beloved, I want us to kind of take ourselves back in a moment and just take in the magnificence of this epistle that God penned through the Apostle Paul as we do this. Please open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Ephesians chapter 1. And in case you're wondering, I'm not going to have you stand for this reading. Beginning in Ephesians 1 and verse 1, this is the word of God. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, so that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us 
In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind attention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. And to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Therefore, Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, 
excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him... We both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord." in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, and By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have bold and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation on your behalf, for they are for your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, so that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
And that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he, laid, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. That in reference to your former manner of life, you laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness and truth. Therefore, laying aside 
falsehood. Speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor performing with his own hands what is good in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this You know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And so then... Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of God. Of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that 
he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So also husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. 
And I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. That was reading the letter. The original intent was to be about a third of all these three parts. And I do appreciate, I guess the services are now going to, to uh, 10 instead of 9.45, so <laughs> give me a little more time. But after reading the letter, let's review the benediction. Our text here this morning, verses 23 and 24, Paul does what he very often, most often does in his letter is he closes with a benediction, a pronouncement of a blessing on his audience. And what we'll see even as one of the beautiful songs we sang before of tune our hearts to praise God, we see three melody lines that run through the entire letter are captured here, and Paul leaves his Ephesian audience with these three melody lines of truth ringing in their ears, namely peace, grace, and love. The first melody line is peace. And it's interesting, we see here at the beginning, he says, peace to the brethren, at the beginning of our text, peace be to the brethren. It's interesting because in every other Pauline letter, in his closing benediction, he uses a second person, plural. He says, peace be to you, or as our Texan friends would say, be to y'all. But what he does here is he says, he speaks in the third person, peace be to the brethren. And this is because by way of reminder, this wonderful letter is, has more of a focus on the universal church rather than the local church. And it's because of that is why Paul breaks from his normal pattern here. Now, Paul does, when he opened up his letter, he opened up with a personal benediction. He said, grace to you and peace. But here he breaks away from that just to remind the Ephesian believers to remind us of the beauty of the one new man, of Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old, together in Christ. Peace be to the brethren. Peace, peace is the smile of God reflecting itself in the heart of the redeemed. Jesus himself said in his upper room discourse, John 16, verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Or I would commend to you going back to chapter two, verses 14 through 17. Three times there you'll see him talking about peace. That magnificent statement where the apostle Paul talks about the dividing wall that had been put in place by God between Jew and Gentile under the old covenant in the Old Testament was broken down by Christ so that they became one new reconciled man, one new humanity. He brackets that section, chapter two, verses 14, through 17 by peace beloved that is the joy and what's good for us to remember is Paul is writing to these Ephesian believers they are living their lives in this huge city that is dominated by what we call one of the seven ancient wonders of the world the temple of Diana so these Ephesian believers are surrounded by hundreds of thousands of people that dedicate themselves and devote themselves to Diana and do what 
the Diana's priests and priestesses tell them to do so that they might in vain achieve some kind of peace. But beloved, we understand that without the true peace that only comes through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, Lives can be fearful, sad, anxious, and discombobulated, so also with us. And it is into that kind of shadow of darkness the Apostle Paul speaks to them and speaks to you and to me. He says, peace be to the brethren, all the brethren, all the saints. Back in verse 18, just a few verses before, he told us we are to pray for. The second melody line that again runs through the entire Letter is grace. Now, love is the one that we see next, but love appears in both, both uh, verse 23 and at the end of verse 24. And even as Paul opened up the letter in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, grace and peace. Here he wraps up, he says, peace in verse 23 and grace in 24. So let's talk about grace. And if we want, if you want a concise summary of the gospel that captures the heart of the good news and even captures a very simple summary of Ephesians, it is peace through grace. That is as good, I think, of a concise summary of the gospel as can be. Grace is the fountain. Peace is the stream of blessings that flow from the fountain of grace. In verse 24, You see there he says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the third person, the brethren in verse 23, all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. But God's grace, God's freely bestowed loving kindness in operation, saving guilty sinners. God's riches at Christ's expense. Charles Spurgeon shared the story that There was a particular time when he was walking home from church that he just felt the pressures of ministry and life and was discouraged. And then his mind was drawn to the great promise from God in 2 Corinthians where God says, my grace is sufficient for you. And then the prince of preachers being the master of illustrations, even as he was walking and seeing the river Thames, he thought, of a fish, of a little fish, a tiny fish in the River Thames that had this fear that maybe that the fish would drink that river, die. And then in Spurgeon's mind, Father River Thames said to the little fish, fish, drink deeply, you will never exhaust my supply. My stream is sufficient for you. Then Spurgeon pictured a little mouse in Joseph's great granaries of grain that he amassed in preparation for the famine. A little mouse eating some of that grain, thinking and all of a sudden becoming fearful that maybe he would eat the grain till it was all gone. And then finally Joseph in his mind said, cheer up little mouse, my granaries are sufficient for you, beloved. God's grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient, abundant, and inexhaustible. His grace is vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free. And I didn't compare my notes with Gary's song, but we sang a song talking about the vast and, I think, measureless mercy of God. It's like the vast, unmeasured, boundless, and free ocean, but even infinitely greater. Jesus forgave a woman of her many sins and accepted her as his disciple as she wept before him and poured fragrant aroma over him. Jesus pardoned a thief on the cross and said, today you will be with me in 
paradise. There was a leper that had been excluded and an outcast, hadn't felt the touch of another human for years. Not only did Jesus speak to him, but our loving Savior touched him. Beloved, God's grace is vast, unmeasurable, amazing, and it is sufficient for you and for me. And beloved, as we have learned from Ephesians, God doesn't meet our needs according to our needs. He meets our needs according to his inexhaustible riches and treasures. Heaven's goods purchased with heaven's coin. Peace, grace. The third melody line we see in this closing benediction is love. It begins with love and it ends with love. Portia in The Merchant of Venus said, though justice be thy plea, consider this. If justice be served, we would all be condemned. But because of love. Paul says, look at verse 23, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The love of God. Could we with ink the oceans fill? Were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. Thank you, Brother Gary, for finishing <clears throat> with that song in this magnificent letter. Beloved, Paul emphasizes God's love for his people throughout the letter. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the love, therefore, we owe him and one another in return. This is stressed in every chapter. If we don't understand this, we don't understand Ephesians. And in verse 23, it says, love with faith. Faith is the underlying current throughout the entire book. This means that this love is informed by, educated by, and transformed by the once-for-all faith delivered to the saints. And love with faith and with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ. There at the end of verse 24. A unified people. Beloved, all our professions, claims, and activities must be measured by this yardstick of love. Love is the test. And we can understand, we could say that nothing else matters until we get this one thing. But once we get this one thing, nothing else matters. Everything else falls into place. In chapter 3, verse 19, there Paul wrote, to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. The incomprehensible love of Christ produces a love that is incorruptible in the heart of his child. The word incorruptible there at the very end, it's translated as Immortality in Romans 2 and 2 Timothy 1. It's translated four times, the same word, incorruptible. It's translated four times in 1 Corinthians 15 as imperishable. Beloved, the point is part of the old things passing away in Christ, behold, new things have come, is that the child of God loves Christ with a love that is, is incorruptible. Doesn't mean perfect, but it means in the true child of God, in the true daughter of God, in the true son of God, that love will never be extinguished. And we recognize 
it's very easy for us as human beings to spend time with people that we love at the human level. Most of us just got done doing this, spending a week or two with people we love. The great wonder of this kind of love here in the context of the Ephesian church and of Santan Bible Church is with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ, all the brethren, all the saints. We remember the words of Christ in John 13, verse 35. By this, men will know that you are a disciple of mine. By what? By your love for one another. And beloved, Saul of Tarsus, when we think of peace, grace, love, Saul of Tarsus, he saw no need for grace until he met Jesus. Have you met Jesus? These three melody lines cannot and will not tune your heart unless Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Jesus did say also that anyone who comes to him and asks for forgiveness, he will adopt into his family. He would make you a new creature, a new man or a new woman in him so that these three melody lines can resonate in your heart. So we read the letter. We reviewed the benediction. Let's have a quick recapitulation of the message. Back in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the original Greek. It would say, magnificent gateway into the epistle, a golden chain of many links, a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and colors. Paul piles doctrine upon doctrine, heaping up, uh, just ransacking a thesaurus, bringing out the election of the Father, the redemption of the Son, and the protection of the Spirit. Paul tells us, teaches us, that the Father purposed your salvation, the Son procured your salvation, and the indwelling Holy Spirit protects your salvation. Paul tells us that election is a higher dignity than creation, and as wonderful, as amazing as redemption is, your adoption as a daughter of God, as a son of God, is an even greater honor than redemption. You are redeemed and you are adopted. In verses 15 through 23, chapter 1, it's Paul's first of these two magnificent prayers captured in this letter. Paul follows the praise of God with prayer for the saints. He follows the instruction in verses 3 through 14 with intercession. And one of the things you'll see when you look at verses 15 through 23 is Paul prays for their understanding of the Ephesian believers because he understands their greater understanding, whatever level their understanding of these deep doctrines of grace are will drive their behavior. In the corporate world, they say compensation drives behavior. In the Christian world, doctrine drives behavior. He, at the end of his prayer, and it's a prayer of power, a power prayer, not the power of you or me, but the power of God. And verses 20 through 23 are one giant illustration by the Apostle Paul of the power of God behind your election, redemption, adoption, and protection, rooted in the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And then 
Because Jesus, beloved, is your risen, ascended, and seated Lord, you, we live with security in an increasingly insecure world. We have comfort in the midst of suffering. Paul, at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, said, the comfort I share in Christ, I want to comfort you so that you also may comfort others with the comfort with which you have received from Christ. But then... When we turn the page to chapter 2 and verses 1 through 3, Paul wants to make sure that every believer understands that in our prior state before our conversion, before our rescue by God, we weren't misguided, weak, or sick. Our predicament was far, far worse. We were dead, depraved, and damned. And that is the grave diagnosis by God of every man without God. Paul in this letter, beloved, doesn't write to the good people about the bad people. He writes to the saved people and reminds us of how bad we used to be. We were blind to God's beauty. We were deaf to his voice and utterly devoid of any ability to please God. We were going where we should not go, doing what we should not do, serving where we should not serve and what we should not serve, hearing what we should not hear, saying what we should not say, thinking what we should not Think, forfeiting what we should not forfeit, craving what we should not crave, and gratifying what we ought not gratify. But after Paul takes us on a walk through the cemetery of sin in the first three verses, he gives this radical diagnosis of the state of the unsaved man or woman that requires a radical cure. And in verse four, the mighty adversative, the two beautiful words, but God, but God. From verse three to verse four of chapter two, we are shot like a rocket from the deepest hell to the gates of heaven. And beloved, this is the hinge, but God is the hinge upon which all the gospel promises of God from the Garden of Eden to the end of time in Revelation hinge upon. Paul takes us when we go from 2-3 to 2-4, from hell to heaven, from bondage to freedom, from darkness to light, from despair to hope, from wrath to glory, from death to life. Because, beloved, In Christ, you are alive, you are ascended, and you are now, by God's word, seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father and ruling with him. Paul lets us know that Christ's privilege is your privilege. His position is your position. His power is your power. His victory is your victory because you, because we are in Christ. Christ. In chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, the beautiful evangelistic verses. We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Then verse 10, four works. The complete picture, the complete package. The way my beloved Margie used to say, the whole enchilada. Beloved, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, this is the shibboleth, the dividing line between biblical Christianity and every false belief system in the world. It is the heart of the gospel. Because all false religions start with man and then try in vain to proceed up to God, whereas biblical Christianity, which is modeled and taught as beautifully as 
perfectly and as powerfully in Ephesians as anywhere else starts with God and then comes down to man. Christ came down so that he would carry us, that he would carry you and me up with him to heaven. Verse 10, chapter two, we are his workmanship, his poema, his poem, his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that you, I, should walk in them. We are his magnum opus. And the rest of chapter two, verses 11 through 22, is where we are introduced again or with greater clarity to this one new man, the one new reconciled humanity. Paul reminds us that we were prior, the Gentiles were without Christ, without citizenship, without promise, without hope, without God, Christless, homeless, hopeless, and godless. But the alienation that he began chapter two with and that he recapitulates later on in chapter two, gives way to reconciliation. Alienation gives way to reconciliation. Enmity gives way to friendship, to peace in a single undivided new humanity. Paul wants us to understand that we are united in our diversity and there is diversity in the unity. It is a one new man, but Jews are still Jews. Gentiles are still Gentiles. Men are still men. Women are still women. But there is a new unity in Christ. And at its foundation, it's a unity of helplessness because that's where, again, grace comes in. We have One foot in heaven and one foot in the world. We're in the world, but not of the world. We have two zip codes, two passports. We are heavenly citizens on earthly sojourns. We have a new life in Christ, and we have a new community in Christ. The body of Christ, the building, the bride of Christ. And we have something better merely than a passport. We have a new birth certificate, And beloved, the application Paul brings out there is we give a picture of Christ to a broken, fragmented, disunited, fractured world with our unity. And all are included in this beautiful unity amidst the diversity, slave and free, male and female, the senile, the awkward and unlovable Christians are not marginalized. All are included. The church, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, the church is a multi-ethnic, multicultural family. And our diversity and our harmony are unique. There is no other human institution like the church when it comes to the diversity and the unity, both together. And... <laughs> Amazing wonder of wonder. In the beginning of chapter three, you and I, we are a cosmic sermon to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. When you serve, when you set up chairs, when you do this, when you greet people at the door, you are part of a cosmic sermon to the rulers in the heavenly places. That's enough to blow your mind, but our time is running out. Second prayer, 
chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Paul's prayer in chapter 1 was more praise-centered. His second prayer is more petition-centered. Chapter 1 is Paul's prayer for their enlightenment. Paul's prayer in chapter 3 is a prayer for their enablement. And verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul says, to him be the glory. This is a doxology. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory in the church. Beloved, God entrusted the glory of his own name to the church, to you and to me. And then we turn the page to chapter 4. We We'll remember that the first three chapters of Ephesians was more focused on position in Christ, more focused on doctrine. When we go to the latter three chapters, it's more focused on our practice and our direction. The first three are more centered on doctrine. The latter three are more our duty. In the first three chapters, Paul tells you and I what our riches are in Christ. And in chapters four through six, he commands us and instructs us how we are to spend these riches we have in Christ. Chapters one through three is what God has done in Christ. Chapters four through six is what we must do in Christ. The grammar of the first three chapters is indicative. There's only one imperative, only one command in the first three chapters. But in chapter four and forward, it's imperative after imperative, command after command. God wants you and I to know, God wants you and I to understand what to know, and he wants us to understand how to grow. Grace of God is the focus in the first three chapters. The peace of God realized in his people are the latter three. And if you're interested, I didn't know this till I counted this week. I preached 15 sermons in the first three chapters. This is the 30th sermon I preached in the latter three. So there you go. Well, the first 16 verses of chapter four, beloved, it's a unified front. And he begins by talking about our walk because the walk, and this isn't something new even in the New Testament, from God's instruction in the Old Testament through the New, one's walk describes one's life, our behavior, our pattern of daily life, what we think, what we say, what we do. And five times in chapter four, verse one, through chapter five, 21, we see walking talked about. Verse one of chapter four, he says, he begins, walk in a worthy manner. Chapter 4, verse 17, don't walk any longer as the Gentiles walk. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, he says, walk in love, walk as light, and walk in wisdom. Because the fool, according to God, lives recklessly, but the Christian walks wisely. And again, Paul, in chapter 4, goes back to the ascension. And Paul lets us know that Jesus carried his humanity into heaven, that there is a heart in heaven that beats with a human heartbeat. And because of this, because you have been raised with him, because of that, we put off the grave clothes and we walk in purity. And a worthy walk is a life that is pleasing to God. And in chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, he talks about, again, a unified people. And then chapter 4, 17 through chapter 5, verse 21, he talks about a purified 
people. And he hits the center of the target of Christian biblical counseling, of Christian life, of Christian sanctification, namely put off the old and put on the new. Put off the vices of the old man and put on the virtues of the new man. And beloved, this is 90% of the battle. In chapter 5, verse 21, actually really chapter 5, verse 22 through 6, verse 9, is where Paul gets very specific and he gets relational. And he talks to six different groups of people, wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. He spends the majority of the time on the first fundamental, most important institution in human life, the marriage. Marriage is the institution from which all other human institutions come from. It's the most vital of all relationships in in humanity. And the clearest living example, picture, demonstration of the gospel, of the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts is in a God-honoring, wife-loving, husband-loving marriage. Men and women are made in the image of God and redeemed by the grace of God. They are equal in created dignity, equal in redemptive privilege. And Paul calls husbands and wives, in chapter 5, verse 22 through 33, back to the beauty, purity, and fidelity that God established in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. It's a beautiful picture of husbands lovingly leading and wives joyfully submitting. The wife is called to submit to a husband who is called to die on behalf of his wife. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Respect her, honor her, guard her, protect her. Chapter 6 Verses 1 through 3, he speaks to the children. Verse 4, chapter 6, God speaks to the fathers. Verses 5 through 9, chapter 6, is slaves and masters. We're reminded in the section on slaves and masters that work is ordained by God. It's a gift from God. It's our ministry to God, and it is part of our mission field. We're in the world, but not of the world. We, friends, we make friends with the worldly But we're not friends with the world. Wherever God has us, we seek the shalom, the welfare of our neighborhood, our community, our company. And looking at chapter 5, verse 22 through 6 through 9, we realize that the Christian wife should be a better wife than any other wife. The Christian husband should be a more sacrificial, loving, better husband than any other kind of husband. The Christian child should be a better child. The Christian family should be the best type of family in the whole world. The Christian worker should be the best worker conceivable, and the boss man should be the best boss man in the company. In verses 10 through 17 is God's great call to war for every believer and the armor of God. We're in a holy war. The battle for man's soul is underway. There's a cosmic struggle that takes place in the heavenly places, but manifests itself in moments of time and decisions of life. And I love, David, what you preached on last week. I actually live-streamed both services. I was in Flagstaff in the house doing some different things. But I like David when he talked about valor in the military world. Uh, I think he said, work out both arms and legs so you don't become half a stick figure. Anyway, we're in a holy war. Beloved, as pilgrims, we walk. 
As witnesses we go, as athletes we run, as soldiers, each and every one of us stand and fight. And we have the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of readiness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and then the one offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then as we get to the end where we're at here, verses 18 through 20, this letter from Paul, which is overflowing with mountainous doctrines and thoughts, begins in the great heights of doctrine and it ends on its knees in prayer. Paul reminds us in verse 18, prayer is always the right response for every Christian in every circumstance and in every season of life, according to the situation and in every situation. Tychicus, verses 21 and 22, is a man marked by fidelity, humility, and integrity, a life lived in the Lord and for the Lord. And then we have our closing benediction, beloved, in conclusion, in Ephesians, we have been taught and reminded that we were orphans, but now we are sons and daughters. We were homeless, but we have been given homes. We were poor and we have been made rich. We were the guilty but are now the guiltless. We were the giftless but are now gifted for the work of the Lord and gifted to be part of this cosmic sermon to the rulers in the heavenly places. We were the perpetrators whom God has now pardoned. We were dead, but we are now alive forevermore. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your plan of salvation and redemption. We thank you for our adoption into the family of God. We thank you and praise you for the church universal, for every land, tongue, tribe, and nation where there are adopted sons and daughters, men and women, young and old. And we praise you and thank you, Lord God, for our beloved Santan Bible Church. Thank you for this letter to the Ephesians. It is for your glory of your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray, that we sing, that we desire to implement and be obedient with the indwelling might and power of the Holy Spirit to all the commands that you give us in this great book. It's for your glory and honor, Lord, that we pray. Amen.